0: All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session 10 of our class on Lamorte d'Arthur. And first, let me... uh, uh, Steve, I see uh, Steve uh, uh, Malisi was just asking about the the videos. There has been a delay in the posting of the last couple weeks of Maori videos, which is absolutely and 100% my fault. I've been behind on a bunch of things uh with some of the traveling I've been doing lately and it's absolutely my fault, but it has been rectified. They should be up very soon. I don't know exactly when, but very soon. Um the uh bottleneck in the, in the process which was me uh has uh, finally been cleared. So that's uh that's that's coming. Okay. Hey everybody, welcome back. So um I wanted to, before we started tonight, I wanted to make sure to announce some stuff, because it's going to be awesome. We are almost at our annual fundraising uh, campaign. Uh, this coming Saturday, of course, is Hobbit Day, Bilbo and Frodo's birthday. Uh, and so we're going to celebrate that day. And as has been the case for the last five years, we're going to be starting our fall fundraising campaign for Signum University and the Mythgard Institute uh, on Saturday as well. So that's going to be really exciting. There, th- It's going to run, the campaign is going to run from this Saturday, uh, from Hobbit Day this Saturday through October 13th. Saturday, October 13th. Uh, that's going to be the date of our uh, campaign ending webathon, which you probably remember from previous years. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And then... Um, this year, we're going to have a special, really fun kickoff event. We're doing a uh, we're doing a special Hobbit uh, Day reading event uh, on Saturday. So this is going to be this coming Saturday, the twenty second at three p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and I'll be broadcasting both here and go to webinar. You can find the link on our annual fund page, signumuniversity.org. dot org slash fund, uh, and you can find all the, uh, the the link for all of our events and the the list of our sort of our calendar there. Um, anyway, so y- you can, uh, you can, you can log in here or you can join us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Uh, I'll be broadcasting there as well. Um, so what we're going to do, uh, this weekend for our Hobbit Day event is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do readings. Uh, so we have several people who have made some readings. I'm going to be doing a reading from the fall of Gondolin and, uh, we're going to be doing, Readings and, uh, sort of light discussion afterwards, not, uh, sort of deeply academic discussion, but more of the, uh, sort of appreciation kind. Uh, you know, it's really great just to kind of sit back and, and, and talk on a slightly more personal level about, you know, why these stories have meant so much to us. Um, It's a really uh, wonderful time. Hobbit Day is a really wonderful time to kind of, you know, sort of step back a second and and just remember uh, kind of why we all do this and why we've all been so enthusiastic about this for a long time. Um, So anyway, that's what we're going to be. That's what we're going to be working on uh, there for a while. So um, so that's going to be Saturday, three o'clock to five o'clock Eastern Time on Saturday the 22nd is our our, our, our kickoff event uh, and then uh, one of the other highlights of the campaign every year is my Lord of the Rings Online Marathon for those of you uh, who are into that uh, I'm going to be exploring Gondor uh, uh, in uh, the game world which I have visited a couple times but never really uh, fully explored myself at least not in human form so uh, I'm going to be doing that uh, 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 for a long time on the 29th, about 12 hours or so uh, on the the 29th of september uh, and then as i say the the webathon and we 're going to be having some we 're going to be doing some special stuff and giveaways and uh and uh and door prizes and things like that uh during Maori class and stuff uh uh soon so i 'll be i 'll explain the details of that next week but um that 's uh, all going to be stuff that 's going to be happening so I just wanted to let you know that that was coming up also a reminder we are almost to middle moot. Uh, Middlemoot in Kansas City uh, which is on October 6th Saturday, October 6th. So this coming Saturday is Hobbit Day reading event. The Saturday after that is the Lotro Marathon. The Saturday after that we're going to be in Kansas City. Uh, so uh, that's going to be great fun. So uh, we, we're having a, a great crowd uh, in Kansas City for Middlemoot. I hope you'll be able to join us. If you're anywhere nearby, please do come join us. Check out the registration form again, signumuniversity.org uh, uh, Just scroll down a little bit and you'll see the, uh, the event link, uh, for middle moot. We of course have other moots also going on. We've got LA moot on October 27th. We've got, uh, uh, I almost said Tex moot, but that's not next. We've got Magnolia moot in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, on, uh, November 10th. And then we've got Tex moot, uh, down in Waco, Texas, uh, on, uh, January, January 19th. So lots of, lots of things, uh, coming up and happening here. So, uh, should be, should be lots of fun stuff. So, um, okay. Um, so let's go back to the text today. My goal today is to do all the rest of, uh, uh, the Emperor Lucius stuff. Um, I would, uh, (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit keen uh, to get this section behind us. This has always been my least favorite part uh of Le Morte d'Arthur. Uh and the primary reason why I, one it's just awkward because like you get you've you've gotten used to Maori's language and now all of a sudden it's just weirder. Um and it's this kind of bizarre hybrid of, of like 14th century Middle English and 15th century Middle English and it's kind of you know neither uh, neither fish nor fowl, and and it's and it's just a little bit strange and jarring, I find anyway. Um, but in addition, the bigger thing, and this is something that's always kind of bugged me a little bit in the background, I have to admit, um, but which I've been thinking about a little bit more as uh, you know, I've been going through and reading through this time in preparation, and I think I've been able to put my finger a little bit more precisely on what has always bothered me about this section. Um, And it's that Mallory is departing from his own particular idiom, as I'm suggesting in my title here. Um, The alliterative Mort Arthur is a fun poem. Uh, You know, I, I don't dislike the alliterative Mort Arthur at all, but it's different. It's very different from the rest of Mallory. And Mallory... His very close adaptation of uh, the alliterative Mort Arthur leads him into no end of awkwardness, really, I think. Um, His... It just... it, It doesn't really work. This section, whole section, doesn't fit in that the so many of the things that he's doing some of the things that he's bringing in the whole like tone and spirit and characterization and everything is is just it doesn't it's it doesn't fit with uh, um with maori's world um this is not the arthur that he's been building up that he's been depicting this is not the you know the lancelot not even the gawain that he's been depicting he's not depicted lancelot much yet but anyway it's just uh you know, I don't know I feel like you can see what he's trying to do what Maori's trying to do and the the you know sort of the ways in which he's trying to bring this story within um, his uh, his his world his Arthurian world but it's it's he's not thorough enough I think in doing that and it's it ends up I find uh, kind of awkward um, we looked uh, for example last week at the um, the fun instance right when he replaces uh, riotous with royalist, right? Arthur's going to bring his riotous knights down through and rampage through Italy uh, on his way to sack Rome. Um, and uh, Maori changes that to I'm going to bring my royalist knights down. Except when push comes to shove, they're still riotous. They're not actually uh, very royal uh, when they uh, when they came down. But anyway. We'll get there I hope you'll see what I mean, but like i say i'm gonna I wanted to get through but that's not to say that there aren't some fun sections uh, of this some of the fun of course is uh there in the original uh uh in uh, which you know which fun Maori is just importing um uh, uh, other things are just kind of cutenesses of, <laughs> of Maori's uh, adaptation but we'll get there so we're gonna see if I can, we're gonna see how much of it we can get through here tonight all right so. This is the passage that I came to and stopped last time because this one is complicated and I'm not going to try to gloss it word by word. Um, the goal is just to get the overall picture, right? Uh, and the, so the question to ask yourself here, um, the question to ask yourself is, or rather, I, say, I guess the question that this passage is designed to answer is, what's at stake? Who's the enemy here? Um, what is Arthur lined up against? you see, when he goes down to Rome. Um, Because, you know, to say he is fighting the Roman Empire, well, that could mean so many things, right? Um, Are we thinking of the Roman Empire as that, like, destined to be you know thinking it from like an aeneas point of view right as like that destined future empire that's supposed to be you know chosen of the god and fortune's favorites are we thinking of that are we thinking of rome as this like great traditional strength and you know the, the 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 powerhouse and backbone of europe are we think how are we supposed to be thinking of this right who's the enemy here exactly um and that i think is what um what this is supposed to answer. But actually, before I go, I, one quick question. Marilyn was asking a, a quick uh, language question before we start. Uh, great question, Marilyn. Um, Show us about the, the, the phrase on live. Great question. Um, what is it? Um, it? It does. So uh, when he says like he's the greatest knight on live. Um, it means yes, the greatest knight alive, the greatest knight in the world. Essentially, on live is a pretty. Uh, who is currently alive um, of all living knights? He is the greatest. Is what it means when you say he's the greatest knight on live. Um, so uh, so yeah yeah um yeah yeah <laughs> Karina I know try to try to focus here. On the names of the, on on the names of the, the, uh, all the names and lists of places and stuff here. Um, Create a one fun thing. It's much more interesting if you try to pronounce all of these names in Middle English, right? Uh, Then you get to say names like Pompoil and things like that. So, I mean, like, who doesn't enjoy that? Anyway, okay. Fan the emperor sent forth his messengers of wise old knectes unto a country called Ambraj and Araj, and unto Alisander, to Inda, and to Hermini, that the river of Euphrati run is by, and to Asi, Aufrik, and Europe the large, and to Ertain, and, and Elami, and to the Oat Isles, to Araby, to Egypt, to Damascus, to Damayak and to noble dukes and earls, and also the king of Cappados, and the king of Tars, and of Turkey, and of Pounce, and Pampoil, and of outer Praetor-Johannesland, also the Sudan of Surrey, and from Nero unto Nazareth, and from Garese unto Galilee, there come Saracens, and become subjects unto Rome, so they come gleading in guiles. And also there come the king of Cyprus, and the Greeks that were gathered, and goodly arrived, and the king of Macedonia, and of Calaba, and of Catalonda, both kings and dukes, and the king of Portingala, with many thousand spaniards. Spaniards, sorry. Thus all these kinges and dukes and admirals nobles assembled with sixteen kinges at Onus, and so they come unto Rome with great multitude of people. Juan the emperor understood their coming. He made ready all his noble Romines and all men of war betwixt him in flounders. Also he had gotten with him fifty giantes that were engendered with fiendes, and although he let ordain for to await on his person, and for to break the battle of the front of Arthur's cnictes, but they were so much of their bodies that horses might not bear them. And thus the emperor, with all his horrible people, drew to pass Alamine to destroy Arthur's landes that he was that he was through war of his noble Canictus. Okay. Um, lots of kings here. That's <laughs> King James says he's known too many Spaniards. They're all here, right, James? All of those Spaniards are here. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, what's the answer to the question? So, back up for a second. Ignore all the names. Every single one of them. Don't think of a single one of the name. What's the message here? Because there are several messages here, right? Several answers to the question, who's the enemy? Who is fighting against King Arthur here? One answer is everybody, everybody. I mean, this is not just everybody geographically. This is like everybody historically, too. Right? Like, you'll notice the Macedonians are fighting as well. I mean, it's like they've thrown into this list not only all the countries that they've heard of, but, like, all the countries they've ever heard stories about, right? Uh, so, like, you've heard stories of Alexander the Great and the Macedonians, right? Well, yeah, they came too, right? Everybody, they're all there, right? Um, yeah, so this is like King Arthur Contramundum, right? The entire world— all of the known world, like seriously, outside of the lands that King Arthur controls, everybody in the world is arrayed against him. Right? Um, so that's uh, that's a big deal. Stephen says China's sitting it out. Ah, no, they're not. Right? Um, okay, maybe not the Chinese, but the Mongols are there. Uh, that's who. That's what uh, Praetor Johannes is. Johannes Land, That's that's Mongolia. Okay. Um, that's where Prester John went. I'm not even going to get into Prester John, but but yes, that's a Prester John uh, reference. Who was it that recognized it that somebody? Went, yes, Julie Dick. Exactly. Yes. Um, so th- it's th- trust me. It, that means Mongolia, right? So the Mongols are there, right? Um, I you know Jordan says it's Rome resurgent. No, this is like Rome in, in Rome's wildest dreams, right? Rome didn't conquer half this terrain, right? Uh, at its heyday. So, uh, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is kind of, uh, this is kind of amazing. Um, uh, yeah, (laughs) you're right, John, if they had heard of the Native Americans at this point, the Native Americans would have been there too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yep. Yeah, no, and the Aztecs and everybody—I mean, absolutely everybody—would have been. I mean, it's it's the entire known world. Notice the in India. We've got India here, right? Um, uh, as well as Asia, which means presumably Asia Minor, uh, Africa. I mean, everybody, everybody, everybody's there, right? So that's one message: is that t- this is this is this passage is designed to? It is designed to just kind of overwhelm you. You don't have to know all the references. I mean, that—that is to say, I don't think that. Mallory's thought was that everybody is gonna even know all of these names. It's not I don't think it's what it's important what is important here. What's important here is the simple like the weight of the list, right? As it just rolls over you and rolls over you, like wow, like all of these kings and dukes and earls from all of these lands are all to raid against Arthur. That's amazing, right? And giants. Yes, exactly. And who is asking about the giants? Um uh Let's see. because um, let's see, I think you were um, uh, somebody was asking who was asking about the giants? was asking if you were, yes, there Carita, yes. Um, giants engendered by fiends. Yes. So giants who are the children of demons, you are understanding that correctly. That's, that's why they're giants. Right, because uh, they're the descendants of fiends. Like, not all descendants of fiends, you know, like, not all children of fiends end up like Merlin. You know, um... Yeah. Giants, but no dwarfs, Brian, exactly. There are probably dwarfs around, but we don't. they don't brag about those. Uh, you know, like... It, it would give entirely the wrong impression to be like, and they, you know, and like there were a bunch of dwarfs arrayed against them. Um, I know, like, it's different, right? Um, uh... Stephen says, is Maori thinking of the Nephilim? Yeah, most likely. I think so. I am pretty sure that that interpreted... So, oh, sorry, so, Stephen, you're going to make me explain this now. Um, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood is described, um, there's this extremely cryptic passage that nobody really knows exactly what it means, um, that there were giants in the land in those days, that the children of, of, of God looked on the children, the, 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 the sons of God looked on the daughters of men and thought that they were fair and lay by them and there were giants in the land in those days. One interpretation of that passage is that this is like angelic spirits, like demons, uh, uh, having sex with mortal women and producing giants and that was pre-flood. That's one of the reasons that God sent the flood. This is a, a traditional Interpretation of Genesis chapter six, and Stephen, I believe that that interpretation of Genesis Genesis chapter six was around. I'm pretty sure. I don't. I'd have to go back to my biblical, my old biblical commentaries, uh, uh, not mine. I mean, that is the old Latin biblical commentaries I used to read back in the day. Uh, one of my minor fields for my oral exams way back in high school was uh, medieval scriptural commentary. So, uh, I used to read, uh, I, I used to, who's what literary character is it? Who says I used to go in for that a great deal. uh, uh, uh at one time, who was it? Who used to say that is that a Dickens character anyway? Um, but um, anyhow, so yeah. But I can't remember. Ex- I can't remember with a hundred percent confidence. But I think that the I think that the Nephilim were uh, were around. That 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 concept of the giants was around. Certainly, we see something very like it here. If if he's not thinking of Genesis six uh, explicitly. Um, okay, um, so. So, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got... And the giants are just... They're like the cherry on the top of this, like, you know, massive Sunday, right? Um, and notice that uh, uh, Emperor Lucius is keeping them as his bodyguard, right? Um, now, notice what else we see. Anyone else... So, now, stop ignoring the names. I Told you to ignore the names. Don't, now, don't ignore the names. Um, apart from everybody in the world... How else would we characterize who or what we see here in this uh, uh, in uh, uh, who again uh, another answer to the question who is arrayed against Arthur who is the enemy here um, The key here is um, well there are it's true. Julie that we do have sort of ancient worthies again especially when we're thinking about like the 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 memories of Alexander the Great and there are two memories of Alexander the Great here right not only the uh, the uh, Macedonia which I already mentioned but of course Alessandra Alessander here which means Alexandria of course um, we're talking about Egypt here um, but uh, uh, yeah yeah um. remember we're in the 15th century right so um araby turkey uh saracens that's an important word right saracens means muslims okay that's a medieval synonym essentially Um, the medievals didn't even know the word Muslim. They, 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 they called them Saracens. Um, they called the, the, uh, the, the Muslim Saracens. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, these are the bad guys, right? And I'm not saying that they would have associated every nation that's being listed here as bad guys, but bad guys are featured here. Um, And the the kind of cue that we have for that, even if you missed it in the list, right? Um, Notice at the end, uh, and thus the emperor with all his horrible people, right? These are horrible people, right? And I don't think that's not meant to be a moral condemnation of each one individually, right? Um, And you can say, of course, that this is horrible in the sense of like his army is so massive that it is, it inspires horror, right um it is quite possible that that is at least one sense in which he means it um but but i think there's more to it than that too uh as well these are clearly the bad guys um and that's um that becomes extremely clear when we're uh, when we're actually reading the battles, right, and the uh, and the, the the descriptions of the scenes, again, the giants, who are the 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 uh, the children of fiends, who are in, engendered with fiendish, that's another clue, right, um, that these are that these are the bad guys. Another fairly clear signal here. Um, I should pause here for a second. This, of course, is another one of these places, when you're reading a medieval text, that it's really important to put aside your modern perspective and try to understand where they're coming from. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it. But you do need to understand it. Um, And from the perspective of a 14th or 15th century English person, the Muslims are simply the enemy. Right, they are simply the enemy. the The Muslims are uh, the those not only the the people who they've been fighting against in the crusades and who by this time remember by the 1500s there have been many crusades so they've been at war with them for hundreds of years essentially and not only that they're also encroaching through southern europe right spain and france um so there's the there's the 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 more local threat from the south um mm-hmm. they've been at war with them for generations there'll be very few of these you know uh, nightly of nightly folks uh like uh, uh maoris um you know sort of class right of people who you know don't have uh, family and 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 you know ancestors who have been killed uh in the crusades um so you know this is um long standing bad blood here uh and they're simply. In almost all cases, just simply the bad guys. Now we're going to get a really interesting thing, which is going to be a foreshadowing of an even more interesting thing uh, uh, at the end. So we'll see if I can get to that part of today's reading. Uh, that is, I'm referring, of course, to Sir Gawain's encounter with the Saracen knight uh, at the end, Sir Priamus, who becomes a knight of the Round Table. Um, but we'll, we're 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 um, I'll, I will I will hope to get there. But okay. Julie, I don't know where the term Saracens came from uh I am embarrassed to say um yeah, the Paynims exactly wesley uh there are paynims all over the place in this list uh is a good uh middle English word, and that just means pagan that means uh that's a very uh generic word for people who are not Christians um they're all called paynims. um uh, Sar- uh, Saracens are a, are an important subset of paynims, um, but uh, sometimes you will you will see Maori use the phrase "that paynim knight" uh, and it just means a knight who's not a Christian, um, uh, which also, of course, in turn generally means a knight who's not a European, essentially. Um, okay, all right. So we've established who the enemy is, but notice the effect of this, right? notice how this is setting up arthur notice how this determines the story right arthur is um is the aggressor but arthur is the underdog right and not just the underdog he's the underdog fighting for good and righteousness against all of the questionable hordes of the world right um so anyway that's uh, um that's this is uh setting him up in a very important way right um yeah um let's see oh uh, uh sweet Jack, i see um ethiopia is referred to uh where is it it's somewhere didn't didn't we get ethiopia i was sure we got ethiopia in that list somewhere maybe I, Maybe I made that up. Um, Anyway, sorry. Um, Yeah, Brian says it feels a bit like Sauron's host approaching Minas Tirith. Yeah, a little bit. I think it's supposed to sort of have that effect, except, Brian, you notice the difference, right? Um, Again, think about, like, the shape of the story as a whole. Uh, When the armies of Sauron are approaching Minas Tirith, the story is, you know, we have, like, the last defenders of light with darkness closing in around it, trying to fend it off. Right. Arthur's story is importantly different. He's going into the home. He's, this is, this is Arthur charging through the black gate. Right. Um, and he's not just setting a trap. His, his Arthur is going to go to the black gate and blow the doors off their hinges and take Mordor by force. That's the plan. Right. Um, He is defying uh, openly, setting his standard against all of the united uh, kings of the entire rest of the world in order to defend. Well, not just what's right, of course, in order to defend the honor of England um, uh, and of his realm. But of course, that's being put in terms which are almost but not quite in terms of good and evil here. Um. Yeah. An aggressive underdog. Exactly, Carita. Yeah. (laughs) Like a terrier? A little bit like a terrier. I'm not sure that Arthur would appreciate that simile, but... um, All right. Arthur has a dream, and of course I'm interested in his dream. But, okay, I'm a little puzzled by something too, but anyway, okay. As the king was in his cog and lay in his cabin, he fell in a slumbering and dreamed of how a dreadful dragon did drench much of his people and come flaying on wing out of the west parties and his his head him seemed was enameled with azure and his shoulders shone as the gold and his womb was like mylas of a marvellous hue and his tile was full of tatters and his feet were flourished as it were fine sable. And his claws were like clean gold, and in an hideous flam of fire, there flew out of his mouth, like as the land and the water had flamed all on fire. Than him seemed that come out of the Orient, a grimly bear, all black in a cloud, and his paws were as big as a post. He was all he was all with lug with lokes, and he was the foulest baste that ever ony man see, he roamed and wrought it so rudely that marvile it was to tell. Then the dreadful dragon dressed him against him, and come in the sind like a falcon, and freshly strike as the bear. And again the grisly bearer cutters with his grisly tusks and his breast and his brile was bloody, and the red blood riled all over the sea. Then the warm wind is away, and flares upon hicht, and come doon with such a sooch, and toocheth the bear on the ridge, that fro the top fro the tile was ten foot large. And so he renteth the bear, and brenneth him up clean, that all fell on powder, both the flesh and the bonus, and so it flottered abroad on the sea. All right, that's a, that's a. That's a fun, uh, that's a fun dream. So, uh, womb, yeah, womb, uh, don't worry. Womb just means belly. It's very generic. Uh, everybody's got a womb. Uh, uh, it's, it's a, it doesn't, it's, it's a much less anatomically precise term than it will later become. It just means, it just means your belly or abdomen generally. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I know that's a little bit confusing there. This is not a pregnant dragon that we're reading about, um, uh, yeah, so, okay, um, uh, here's the main thing I'm confused about here. There has got to be a mistake here. I'm quite sure, uh, that Maori has made a mistake. Um, I thought it was a typo at first, and I'm going back and checking, and no, it's not a typo. It really says, it's not a bear. It's clearly not a bear he's fighting. It's a boar he's fighting, Right? I mean that's obviously a boar. I, I mean first like that his paw was, i know it says pawas, but paw paw is a is a is a fairly gener- generic word for an animal's foot too. It's as big as a post, right? So we're talking about like the 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 feet, you know the 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 hooves of the boar. But especially he's got tusks, right? He's got grizzly tusks. Boars always have grizzly tusks, right? Uh, and not only does he have grizzly tusks, but he is he has a Uh, what is it? Where's the, where's the, he's got a ridge. He's got a ridge, right? Uh, from the, on, on his back that goes down his back from his head to his, to his tile, 10 foot large, right? Bears don't have ridges on their backs, but boars do. Uh, I just, and, and he roots exactly, James, he's rooting. I mean, come on. Uh, it's, 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 Uh, yes, Bruce, he certainly does have nasty, big pointy teeth, and I'm sure that that's what he means. And it's conceivable that he's saying that the bear's teeth were so large that it was like unto the tusks of a boar, but I don't think so. I I really, um, I really think that, um, it's a boar, uh, and I, I don't know wherein the mistake comes, uh, how a boar gets, uh, gets, uh, replaced by a bear, um, Uh, but I, I, I am, I am so convinced and actually I was really interested to find, um, that, um, uh, the, um, oh, so, uh, some of you, I think are reading the audible or listening to the audible, the unabridged audible recording that I was mentioning, you know, there was the new one and the old one, and I was recommending the new one. I was really interested to find that in, the, in that newer Audible recording, he actually corrected it. He actually made it, and he, he just said bore uh, all the way through, um, which is interesting, right? I, I, was, I, 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 I was a little bit daring, but I agreed with that. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, I, I, th- I thought that was interesting. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are listening to the Audible recording, I want to nitpick. But there's a word that he keeps messing up that has been kind of niggling at me and I wanted to just mention it cause it's, it's confusing. Uh, there is a word, um, B E S T E D B E S T E D. Um, which the reader, the modern English reader, uh, in audible keeps reading as bested, um, that like, you know, King Arthur was hard bested in the battle. Um and I know it looks like that but that is not the word. Uh the word is bestead, like b e s t e a d is that word. He was hard bested means like he was hard put to it. He was you know they were laying about him fiercely. Um he was uh, he was being given a really stiff fight. But it doesn't mean he was being bested. He wasn't beaten. He's just having a hard go of it, right? But he's going to persevere and he's going to win through. Um again bested means Defeated, Bestead means somebody's attacking you, right? So I, I just little side note: the guy keeps pronouncing that wrong, and and uh, uh, and I'm like, I think he doesn't. I every time he says I'm like, I think that word does not mean what you think it means. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that. Okay, anyway, but back to the bear or boar. Okay, Carita <laughs> boars bears also root. They don't root like boars do. I I I don't I don't think so. Um. And yes, of course, Carita, you could have a bear with tusks and a mohawk in a dream. Yes, a dream bear could be very different. But why? Right? Why? Ah, Atomic suggests uh, that it was autocorrect, that that was the problem, that bear, boar was autocorrected to bear. Uh, It's probably autocorrect is um, uh, a fairly persistent problem in medieval manuscripts. So um, it's probably it. Um... Yeah, um... Korean <laughs> thinks a bear with tusks is more fun. Fine. 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 Um, uh... Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, Stephen, autocorrected to bear with an E at the end. Exactly, yeah, yeah. No, this is, this is Middle English autocorrect, so yeah. Yeah, it would be. Um, yeah. Actually... You know... I never thought of that before. But scribal errors are often like error correct, actually. Come to think of it, that's kind of a good analogy. When a scribe comes to a hard word and is like, Oh, surely you meant this other word, which is much more common and much simpler. You are just making it harder than it needs to be, right? So I'm going to replace the word that you wrote with this other more common word that I think you is what you probably meant. Scribes did that all the time. So actually, I was absolutely joking before, but it's completely true. Autocorrect was a habitual problem in medieval manuscripts. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I never I mean it's, it's so obvious when you think of it, but I never really thought of that before, but it's totally true. That's just how it worked. Um it's almost like uh, it's almost like uh, you know Apple modeled autocorrect on medieval manuscripts actually. Um Yeah. Okay. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> Stephen Cover says he's now imagining office assistant for monks. It looks like you're illuminating a manuscript. Would you like some help with that? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Probably. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, forget about the, book. whether be it a bore or be it a bear, uh, where are we here? Now, several of you were saying this sounds a little bit like the book of Revelation or a little bit like the book of Daniel. In other words, the book that the book of Revelation sounds like, right? Um, yes, this is, this is, this is a vision in an apocalyptic style. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I I believe that it is deliberately modeled after the visions in the book of Daniel specifically. Um with the the different, you know the the different beasts that he sees uh, and stuff. Um, notice, there is also just a just a little touch of um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in there as well, especially in the description of the dragon, right with uh, um, the enameled blue head and the gold shoulders and the uh, the the womb. His belly, um, uh, like males, miles of a marvelous hue, uh, and his tail full of not taters, dole a stroke. Uh, it is no potatoes in his tail. <laughs> he has tatters in his tail. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it does sound a little bit like the statue described in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, um, and yeah, Karina, he does literally powder his enemy. Absolutely yeah. Um, he, he burns him up so cleanly um, that he falls into he falls into powder. the boar/ slash bear falls into powder after he is incinerated, right I mean, it's like the self-cleaning cycle in your oven what the dragon does to the so it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether it's a boar or a bear because it's powdered. Uh, at the end and floated abroad on the sea. The ashes, right? The powdered ashes of the bear boar are scattered abroad uh on the sea after that. Um so he like literally cremates it. Um so uh okay. Um what's going on here? How, oh, how can we under... Because, oh, man, we've got no Merlin anymore. If we had Merlin, he'd explain this in a heartbeat. Um, but uh, fortunately, there's a philosopher, right? Uh, it was easier for philosophers to find uh, profitable work back in these days. Um, uh, Anon the king waked and was sore abashed of his dream, and in all hast he sent for a philosopher and charged him to tell what signify, what signified his dream. Seer, said the philosopher, the dragon thou dreamest uh, the, the, the dragon thou dreamest of betokens thine own person that thus here siles with these sicker Kniktes, and the colour of his winges is, is thy kingdomes that thou hast with thy Knictes won. And his tile that was all Tatarid signified your noble Knictis of the Rune table. And the bear that the dragon slew above in the cloudy... in the cloudy I don't know why it's cloudy. I don't know what the I is there for. Is that a typo? I don't think so. Betoken some tyrant that tormenteth thy people. Other thou art like to fight with some giant. Boldly in battle by thyself alone. It could be that too. Therefore, of this dreadful dream, dread they but a little. And care not now, Sir Conqueror, but comfort thyself. Okay. Okay. Um, lots of Harry Potter jokes being made about the philosopher here. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is Sarah. Sarah Yasin says that the this philosopher was clearly like an early Jungian, right? Yeah, the philosopher's answer is, you are the monster in your dream, right? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah. Um, right. Dred, uh, dread thee but a little. That, No, that, dred, dread thee but a little does translate to something like, don't worry about it, right? Um, or don't worry about it too much is how I would paraphrase that. Um, Dread thee but a little. Um, Don't worry about it too much, is what he's saying here. Um, uh, no, so, Mike, I think he's... I, so it does make it sound like... The philosopher makes it sound like the battle between the dragon and the bear board was in the clouds, right? Uh, but I think that's, I don't think what happened. I think it, cause he's rooting, right? I think in the earth. So I think it's the dragon who's in the clouds and he descends, right? Like a falcon, wham, and then incinerates him. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure this philosopher's getting his text quite right, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, so, okay. Um, he is the dragon now that of course we should have been suspicious of from the beginning. You know, he's our, you know, pen dragon. That's his, you know, that's the whole thing. So, okay. But notice, um, and you know, Sarah coming back to your, your Jungian point here, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, it is interesting that the dragon is pretty, is dreadful, right? The dragon doesn't sound like the hero of this dream. Um, I mean, after all, he kills much of his people. Drench is not a good word when used of people, right? It doesn't just mean he's going to soak them in water, right? Um, uh, That's not good. That means slaughter, right? Uh, And come flaying on wing out of the West Parties. Um, Then we got the description of his, you know, person. Um, And a hideous flam of fire. There flew out of his mouth, like as the land and the water had flamed all on fire. That's probably a good thing. Probably. Right. The uh, flame of virtue, right? Um, ah, no, you're right, Mike. So is the philosopher, yes, that, that it is in a cloud. I see, right. Um, he's in a cloud. No, the philosopher is still wrong. Yeah, I th- I think he's still wrong. Well. Hmm. No, I'm sorry. When I read that, a grimly bear all black in a cloud, in a cloud, I thought that meant he was like, sh- sh- like there was like fog ab- ab- around him. Like it was, you know... Like they turned on the, the, you know, dry ice machines when the, when the bear boar came in, right? So he was in a cloud, um, like in a cloaked in shadow, like he was coming in cloaked in shadow. I didn't take that to mean he was actually up in the clouds. Um, I suppose that's possible. The philosopher seems to think so. Uh, now the philosopher seems to think so. Now, he's probably right. and I'm probably wrong. The dryest effect would be good, though, wouldn't it? Um, some of his explanation doesn't really seem to explain. Um, and his title, that was all to tattered, signified your noble knictus of the round table? Uh, why? How? Um, they're tattered, the knights of the round table? In what sense, tattered? tattered in the sense that many of them are about to die in this battle and so there's going to be a bunch of openings on the round table fairly soon i i don't know why uh why it is that cuz i mean it's the tattering right um that um it's the tattering of the tail that uh, that he's pointing to right that's what gives that, that's the the tell right that's the giveaway um, that shows that it means his knight's at the round table. Um, now, I always think so. Marilyn is suggesting that it means it just has uh, like individual spikes, right? Um, and it's full of spikes. And so each spike represents a different knight. And so that's why it, it's the round table. It's possible. But it's the, and if all we had, Marilyn, was the first description, right? Uh, when he says uh, uh, his tile was full of tatters. Right. Um, okay. If we understand tatters then as not tatters, like not it's ripped and torn, but rather it's uh, it's got like lots of individual bits sticking off of it. Right. Then okay. But it's you know the way I'm all to tattered makes it sound like it's been like it's something when to is uh, put at the beginning of a verb uh, like that or past participle in this case. Um, it. Um, it suggests action like the the thing was done to it, right? Um, so uh, it really sounds like something has been been happening to it. No dollar a stroke, uh, and no Katriana. I do not think the potatoes reading still makes the most sense. I have to disagree with you there. Um, uh, but um, yeah, Carita, I agree. Merlin would have done a much better job explaining this. But let's back up for a second. Because, of course, we've missed the first important point, right? The first important point is the kind of dream that this was, right? The kind of interpretation that it asks for. Um, We know we are in a particular place here when you're having this kind of allegorical dream. Um, A message is being sent to you. This is generally, uh, I I use the word apocalyptic, right? Um, But let's... All right. I'm going to try not to ramble on this uh as apocalyptic visions is wow, I'm like this is like the way back day for me. Uh first uh remembering my uh my oral exams in grad school on biblical uh, commentaries and now my PhD dissertation um in which I talked a lot about apocalyptic visions and uh the word apocalyptic doesn't mean what it the 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 word apocalypse in the modern usage means exclusively like disaster that happens at the end of the world right whenever anyone is talking but whenever anyone is ever anyone is using the word apocalyptic they are meaning like the 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 end of the world or the end of civilization uh that's like what the word means but the word literally means as mike and bruce both said And James revealing, uncovering. Uh, Apocalypse is the Greek word that is the title of the last book of the Bible, right? Uh, Which is translated in English as Revelation, right? It is the apocalypse. Literally, as James Oakley says, the uncovering, right? That's what apocalyptic visions are. An apocalyptic vision is not a vision of the end of the world. An apocalyptic vision is a vision that reveals something, that uncovers something, right? That sends a message. It's not, a, in a sense, it's like, so we, when we use the word apocalypse, we always mean the end of the world. When we use the word prophetic, we always mean predicting the future. But that's not actually the sense of the word prophetic in the Old Testament, certainly. An Old Testament prophet is not somebody who goes around predicting the future professionally. That happens sometimes, but that's not their primary job. The job of a prophet is to be God's mouthpiece, right? They go around and say message for you from God. Knock it off or you're in big trouble, right? Like, that's the kind of thing that they go around and say. They're great fun at parties, uh, especially if you happen to be, you know, like the king of um, uh, uh, the king of, of, of uh well almost anywhere <laughs> frankly, <laughs> but if you're a king, you're not a big fan of these prophets, but anyhow, that's what prophets normally do, but we in modern usage tend to you tend to think of prophecy as the thing that's predicting the future that's what apocalypse was. Right. Um, When something about the future is being revealed and it tends to be revealed in this mode. Right. Nebuchadnezzar's dream when Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two uh, has the dream of the statue with the golden head and the silver chest and the uh, the 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 brass belly and the iron legs. um, That's you know, we talked about that last week or something. Um, That's an apocalyptic dream as well, um, revealing what is to come uh, in the future. Um, And ultimately, of course, also the end of uh, that order of civilization too. It is apocalyptic, It is an apocalyptic vision in the modern sense, ultimately. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So... Exactly, Stephen. When prophets did predict the future, it was primarily yes, that was uh, them showing their bona fides, right? That was them proving that they were, uh, that they were, that their messages were legit, right? Um, that's how you could tell a legit prophet. Um, but again, it's, it, it wasn't the core job of prophecy, but it was the core job of apocalypse, right? That's what the apocalyptic genre is. In that sense, this is an apocalyptic dream that Arthur has, right? It is being revealed to him what's going to happen. Notice a lot Of Merlin's stuff was apocalyptic. It just wasn't in the apocalyptic mode. Right. He didn't get all like, and then I beheld beast, which had all these things which need to be interpreted allegorically. Right. Merlin didn't do allegory. He just did plot spoilers. Right. But plot spoilers, uh, the the dominant mode of apocalypse, which Merlin is not in. Right. The dominant mode of apocalypse is this. Right. Uh, Dream or vision, which is to be allegorically interpreted um, uh, detail by detail. He could probably, um, you know, if, uh, Arthur gave him a raise, this philosopher could probably tell him in detail, like which of the kingdoms that he's conquered is represented by which color, you know, in the like wings and claws of the dragon and stuff like that. Um, he just doesn't go into that much detail. Again, I think probably because he's shooting for a pay raise, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um. Dolar strook says one would think the most useful dreams would have to be the ones where you lose, yeah, and arthur 's going to have one like that actually uh later on before he loses, <laughs> uh, but not yet because he 's not yeah, this is he 's still he 's still on the upward swing, or uh it, for those of you who remember your boethius right he 's still on this part of the wheel of fortune right he 's not quite at the top yet he 's still probably about. Two thirds of the way up the upside of the wheel of fortune, and uh, uh, but it's going to keep on turning. Of course, that's why the book is called—you know—Caxton titled the book *L'amour d'Arthur* because we all know the wheel's going to turn, right? Okay, um, let's keep going and than come there an husbandman out of the country and talketh unto the king wonderful wardes and said sir here is beside a great giant of Jaina, that tormenteth thy people, more than five hundred and many more of our children, that hath been his sustenance all the seven winters. Yet is the sot never ceased. but in the country of Constantine he hath killed and destroyed all our knave children, and this necht he hath claked the Duchess of britain as she rode by a river with her rich knictes, and led her unto yonder mount, to lie by her while her life lasteth. "'Many folk has followed him, "'more than five hundred baroners "'and bachelors and knictes, full noble, "'but ever she shrieked wonderly loud, "'so that the sorrow of that laddie "'cover shall we never. "'She was thy cousin's wife, "'sir Howell the Hind, "'a man that we call nigh of thy blood. "'Now as thou art o'er right was king, "'rue on this laddie, "'and on thy liege people, "'and revenge us as a noble conqueror should Oh, man. Um... Uh, so this is, this is bad, right? He's, so there's this giant, right? And this giant is an awful giant. Uh, and he's been eating their children for seven years. He's eat he's, he's destroyed all their, all their Knav children, right? All the boys. Uh, uh, that means boys. Um, uh, so every single boy child from the land has been eaten by this giant, right? Uh, because this is what he does, right? Um, yeah. Um, and they're helpless, right? 500 barons and bachelors and canictes, um, uh, they couldn't do anything, right? But the description of the ho of the, 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 the terrible loud shrieking, uh, of the duchess, right, as she's being dragged to this horrible fate, he's going to take her up to the mount and lie by her while her life lasteth, which, it's not going to be long, right? Um, he's going to rape her to death very quickly. Um, "Clicked" that means grabbed, uh, kidnapped, um, uh, captured. Yeah. Yeah, no, Karita, he absolutely does rape her to death. And uh, I didn't, do this passage because i I mean i was tempted to do it but i'm like no i'm not going to do this passage just because it's really uh explicit and horrible um but i mean he describes it right she's she's slit up to the novel right um she's she's ripped to the belly button and and killed yeah uh she's dead that night actually uh he rapes her to death right away um so, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, he's awful. He, and, and it's all, but the giant is all, the focus on the giant is all about his fleshly lusts in more than one sense, right? He both, uh, has this raging lust for women, uh, and is a, a sexual predator, uh, r- routinely raping women to death, Um, and also fleshly lust in the sense of his desire for flesh, right? To eat the flesh, especially of children and of babies, um, yeah, Dolor Sturck, I agree. In earlier Arthurian stories, she often dies out of fright uh, or before the rape. Maori is especially violent here, yes. And I think, if I, uh, Dolor Stroke, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe he's following, in most of his gruesome descriptions, I believe he's following the, the alliterative Mort Arthur, which does have the most hideous description of this giant. This giant is a feature in much Arthurian literature, but I'm pretty sure that the alliterative Mort Arthur is the most like, R-rated description. Of this giant of any of the um, of any of the accounts that we get of him, and, and I'm almost certain that I remember the um, um, the 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 rotisserie babies uh, that he describes. That's I'm almost positive that's uh, he's taking that from the alliterative of Mort uh, as well. Um, Carita, I'm not sure why boy children specifically. Uh, We'll get back to that. Ask that question again in a minute. I want to go on more horrible things first. So King Arthur sneaks up by himself. Nobody else knows that he's going. Even Arthur and uh, even Kay and uh, Bedwyr, whom he's brought with him, uh, don't know where he's going or exactly what he. They know where he's going, but they don't know what he's doing. Right? They don't know. They don't know about the giant. So he's sneaking up on his own, and there's this old woman there. Uh, this old woman who is apparently uh, 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 too old for him to rape anymore. Uh, I think he's raped her already, uh, like back in the day, but she survived it, apparently. Um, and is living this hideous life, serving the giant by force his, as his slave. Um, um, Karita's asking, does he also eat girls, but they're only counting the boys? No, no. the way that it's, it specifies, uh, I'm pretty sure he eats only the boy children. I'm pretty sure of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, you and I are thinking on the same lines here. I'll come back to that in a second. Okay. Hang on. All right. So here's the poor uh, old slave lady. Dame, said the king, I come for the noble conqueror, Sir Arthur, for to treat with that tyrant for his liege people. Fie on such treatise she sighed then, for he set is not by the king, nor by no man Ellis, but an thou have brought Arthur's wife, Dame Guenevere, he will be more blither of her than thou hadst given him hathandel France, B- and but if thou have brought her, press him not too nigh. Look what he hath done unto fifteen kinges he hath made him a coat full of precious stones, and on the borders thereof is the beardes of fifteen kinges, and they that and, and they were of the greatest blood that dured on earth. Other farm he had none of fifteen realms. This present was sent him to this last Christmas, that they sent him in Fife for saving of their people. And for Arthur's wife he lodges him here. For he hath more treasure than ever had Arthur or any of his elders, and new thou shalt find him at supper with six canav children. And there he hath made pickle and powder with many precious winess and three fire maidens that torn is the brooch that, bid is, to go, that bid is to go to his bed. For they three shall be dead within four hours, or the filth is fulfilled that his flesh asketh. Horrible, horrible. So yeah, so he's there, like, turning the spit. And he, um, he... Th- that's what the brooch is. The brooch means the spit. Um, so it's it's literally describing six K'nav children, six baby boys, impaled on a spit that the three maidens are being forced to turn over the fire uh, to cook the baby's rotisserie style before he rapes them to death later that night. Um that's uh yeah yeah um oh and by the way that for <clears throat> for saving for saving of their people right this present was sent him this last christmas they sent him in faith for saving of their people that doesn't mean that the giant saved them from something right he spared them himself right like it Instead of me killing you all or eating you, right? uh, You can give me this present instead. That's what it's a bribe to the giant. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So this is, um, as I say, extremely gruesome. Um, What? um, What is he? Oh, uh, okay. I won't even get <laughs> I won't even get into the pickle and the powder then. We, we don't even want to know about the pickle and the powder. Um but um yeah, so what's going on here? The dream is a hint, right? Arthur, so let's not forget the context, right? Arthur is setting off to fight against Rome, and we saw what that means. You know he's fighting against Rome, right? He's fighting against everybody. Um, he's setting off to fight against Rome. On the way, he has this dream, and the dream is of monstrous, terrifying dragon him, right, and the bear boar, which is Rome, right, which is his enemy. And then he lands. and we're told, remember, we're told this is a, a foe that you're going to fight. Or maybe, you know, it could be a giant that you're going to do single combat with. That's like the alternative interpretation, right? So the philosopher in his interpretation of the dream already prompts us in our reception of this passage, right? Of this scene with the giant. Because, if you, I mean, this is by far the most random event in this entire section, right? Like, why are we... Like, we now interrupt this, uh, you know, military campaign to bring you this... Random fight with a random giant, right? who is horrible but um uh, you know that's um I you know having now done our 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 giant slaying, we're ready to move on right but there's this clear connection which I think would be clear even if the philosopher hadn't made it explicit, right that Arthur's fight with the giant here is meant to be a parallel. It's like a little synecdoche of what he's doing here in Europe, right? The giant is Rome. The giant is all of the, you know, sort of the rest of the non-English world that is arrayed against him. He is the underdog, just as this giant is so huge and so fearsome that um, no one, even 500 knights at once, have never been able to stand up to him before. So, too, of course, no knights, no kings have successfully stood up to Rome either, right? Trust me, just run roll with that, right? don't tell the Germans, don't tell the Parthians. Uh, nobody's ever stood up to Rome before. Um, so there's an obvious kind of connection here. so there are a couple different ways that we can understand the giant thing here, right? On the one hand, um, this is um, this is political it's like a little political allegory that he is enacting here. And again, the, the beard thing, this is now notice you will remember this from King Ryan's that we got before, right. Who also had a beard cloak. Apparently it's a thing that tyrants do. Um, Again, this is an obvious sort of parallel or sort of alternative version of that story, except this time it's not just an aggressive local king who is refusing to submit to Arthur and who sends him the insulting message asking for his beard once it has a chance to grow out a little bit more, right? Because it's Arthur when he first takes over the throne. But rather, um, so it's, it's, it's not only a parallel like that. It's not only saying the same thing, but larger and more gruesomely, um, but again, look—it it it makes it in the context, right? It makes it even more clear that this is a characterization of Rome, um, the 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 modern Roman Empire, modern boy—that's a weird word to use in this context. The contemporaneous Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is imagined in the fifteenth century as being contemporary with Arthur in the fifth century, right? That's the what we're where we where we are here. That Rome is like this giant, strong, powerful, fearsome, devouring, right, rapacious, um, that will seize the things that are most precious to you and take it for itself, claim it for itself. That will eat your children, right, um, and will wear around a beautiful uh, cloak that is adorned with the beards of kings, um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Mike says the giant is oppression and victimization and chaos. uh, And Arthur has brought order and honor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that is what's, I I think that that's a good characterization of what's happening here. And again, I think that one of the the purposes of this, the reason to have this kind of an incident, um, the role that this plays in the story is it's like, Uh, remember, remember in Hamlet when they put on the play within the play and when the players are doing the play within the play, they start with the dumb show, right? And that was a, 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 that was a common thing on the 16th century stage. So first you walk through the actions of the scene in dumb show, and then you do the scene, right? So the, the audience has already had a preview. It's like it's like a little synopsis. It's a visual synopsis at the beginning, right? Here's what's going to happen in this scene. Now you're ready for it. We'll do it for you, right? Uh, with dialogue this time. Um, the giant fight here is like a dumb show prior to the full act, right? Of the fight with Rome. It's like I don't know. It's like the close notes version. This is this is this is the interpretive key. Um, if you're thinking about if you're remembering Arthur fighting the giant, then you're in the right frame of mind for the whole rest of the story, right? Um, th- that that's the story that's going to be played out in um, you know greater detail at greater length as we as we move forward. Um, yeah, um, the other way to think about it, uh, Dolores Stroke was suggesting this earlier on. Um, you know, the giant is uh, is um eating boys and uh raping duchesses and and uh, st- uh emasculating other rulers and uh enslaving women um uh, and then Arthur is on the other other side of that, so we can think of that as Dolores Stroke suggests, as you know, Arthur is the sort of chivalrous side of the of the of of, of the masculine gender here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. In a sense, this is like the the there is a sense in which the giant is like, you know, masculinity horribly exaggerated. All of the the the. And 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 not even just thinking about it in gendered terms, but even thinking of it in sort of quasi political terms, right? To be uh, to be aggressive, to be um, you know taking what you want and uh, forcing other people to submit to you. That's what real kings do, right? That's what manly kings do. Um, uh, and Arthur is standing up against that. So I do think that it's one of the reasons that Maori really likes. This scene um, is that he he's able to establish Arthur as like this is Arthur is not like this. Right. Rome is like this. Arthur is not like this. Right. These are all the things which are you remember back to the the oath. Right. That he had all of his knights take before. Right. Arthur stands for something different uh, that is not uh, just simply the um, the use of power. Right uh the exertion of force uh, to subject others to your will, however horrible that is, but it 's an also kind of interestingly said uh, uh, self aware kind of moment too, I think, for maori um, remember in the dream, the dragon was well, it was terrifying, and that 's probably good it's probably terrifying in a good way, but when you first read the dream it's not obvious that the dragon is a good guy, right? Um it's it's a horrible dragon. Um and filling the land and the sea with flames is could be good possibly, but not necessarily, right? Similarly, um I uh, Back to the, your question before Karita, about eating boy children. Does he ever eat girl children? No, I don't think that... There are two reasons why I don't think this giant eats girl children. Uh, one is that he's waiting for them to grow up because he has other intentions for the girl children other than uh, uh, eating them. Um, or, Yeah, uh, the other thing... The other reason that I don't think he eats girl children is and this uh bruce was picking up on this before it's it's a little close to home doesn't it there's another ruler who rules over many realms who once collected boy children from his countryside and had them all destroyed right um you know arthur in arthur's worst moment he did that Right. You know, he played the role of Herod, which was a very bad role. Um, uh, the role of Herod was, uh, I mean, Herod was uh, uh, an almost comically wicked character in the medieval mystery plays and stuff, for instance, when they were doing, you know, when they were depicting the Bible stories. Um, uh, Herod is not a good look. And Arthur played the role of Herod uh, when Mordred was born. So... um. There are ways in which the giant is, I think, also a kind of cautionary tale, right? Um, There's a little bit of beware lest you become this, right? Um, On the one hand, this is like the enemy that you are going to overcome. So Arthur versus the giant, again, is is like the foreshadowing of, you know, what Arthur is going to, you know, what's going to be later on. But it's also, I think, potentially a warning, that dragon could easily become a tyrant, right? Uh, could easily, uh, be, I mean, remember it starts off by drenching many of its people, right? It's causing the death of many of its people. I think its own people at the very beginning of that dream. Um, and that's Arthur too. Uh, so I, I do think that this vision here, not, not vision, this, this is, this is live action, right? This is not a, is not a dream. Um, This little allegory that uh, Arthur is himself enacting here um, also has relevance to him himself. And and it's uh, he needs to remain the opponent of this kind of thing. And this is why I dislike especially the rest of the Emperor Lucius section uh, of Mallory, because he doesn't fully stick with that. Um let's keep going. I wanted to explain this because I wanted to make sure everybody got that this was funny. Um and especially since, you know, I, I once did a passage because I was wanting to point out that sarcasm was being used, right? Here Arthur is making a joke. This is a joke. Okay, and I want to make sure everybody gets the joke because it kinda made of, it it's not obvious, right? So remember when Arthur, he brought Kay and Bedweir with him, but he didn't tell him about the giant. He didn't, he didn't say, y'all stay here, I'm going to go up the hill and fight a massive giant single-handedly, right? He doesn't say that. He says there's a, there's a, a monastery up on the hill and he's going up there to worship, right? Uh, so he's like, okay, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to visit this, this like, monastery and shrine up on the hill, right? And then the next thing they know, he comes down and him and the giant are rolling down the hill, right over and under on top of each other by the way notice that as well right sometimes arthur is on top and sometimes he's beneath On the, uh, he's beneath on the one hand this sort of shows the uh you know that the 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 struggle between the two of them right um but also you know it's like they are like each other uh in in a sense there's there's a there's there's a sort of a potential similarity as they're tumbling down the hill together but anyway um Uh, so he's, he's, he's comes rolling down the hill with this giant in his arms. Now he's already given the giant several mortal wounds, right? Um, but remember Kay and Bedwyr think that he went up there to pray, right? At a shrine, at a monastery. Um, and then here he comes, here he comes rolling down the hill with a giant, right? Uh, everybody covered in blood. Um alas, sighed Sir Kai, we are forfeit forever. Yonder is our Lord overfallen with a fiend, right, so he in thinks. Sensibly, that some demon has taken physical form and is attacking Arthur, and he feels bad because, like, we weren't there to back him up, right? We let him go on his own, and now we are forfeit for we have forfeited our honor, right? Because we failed to protect our, you know, here we let him go off by himself, and he got he got attacked by a by a demon, and now what are we supposed to do? It is not so," sighed the king. "But help me, Sir Kai, for this coruscant that I have pledged out of the yonder cloes." That's the joke. You get, you get so he calls it a core saint. Right? Core saint literally means the body of the saints. Okay? So a core saint is a is a holy relic, uh, usually a piece of the of the body, sometimes of the of the clothing of a dead saint. Um, and most shrines and everything featured uh, uh, one of these uh, relics. Relics were a really big deal, uh, especially in the later Middle Ages. Um, and so he, when he when he when he said that there were, he was going up to the cluis, he was implying that there was a shrine up there, that there was a, that they had a holy relic, and that's why he was going to go up there to pray. And so he's calling the giant a core saint. Um, he's like, oh, so I've, uh, I've cledged this, I've, you know, I've, 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 I've taken, I've taken a, uh, Mike, by the way, I think that's the same word, clegged, uh, clagged. So just as the giant clegged uh, the Duchess, right. He's clegged this core saint. He's like, I, 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 I stole the relic, right. Uh, uh, help me, help me with this relic that I've stolen, uh, from, uh, from the, from, from the clois, from the, uh, from the cloister up on the hill that's a joke right it's a joke uh it's not a relic right um but he's he's characterizing um uh, he's 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 characterizing the it's a it's it's a comical opposite right um instead of a holy relic uh you know he's come down with this enormous ugly bleeding murderous giant right and Bedweer rolls with it in faith, sighed Sir Bedwyr, this is a fool, Carl, and cocked the core saint out of the king's armies. And there he sighed, I have mickle wonder that Michael be of such a mocking that ever God won't suffer him to abide in heaven. And if saint is be such that serve his Jesu, I will never seek for none by the faith of my body. Um, okay, so, so, uh, Bedwyr's gonna roll with it, right? Uh, uh, I have mickle wonder, and Michael be of such a mocking, right? So I notice his wordplay as well, right? Mickle, which means great. I have great wonder. Uh, so the the pun, Mike, exactly. It's really good, right? On 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 mickle and Michael, right? I have because it's Mont Saint Michel, right? Is the mountain that they just went up? It's the, the 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 Mount of Saint Michael. Who is Saint Michael? Who is Saint Michael? Anyone know who Saint Michael is? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the angel, the angel, the archangel, archangel, Michael, um, he's the, he's the, Gabriel is the f- most famous of the archangels because he's the one who came down and did the annunciation thing, Ready right? got a lot of press for the annunciation thing, but Michael is the big dude. Um, Michael is the, uh, military captain. He is the captain of the, of the, the hosts of heaven. um, He's the one. He's the dragon slayer, dude. That's right. Ab- absolutely, dory. He's the exactly Bruce, the head of Heaven's army. That's it. Um, so he's a saint. Yeah, exactly. Right, Mike. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that there was like going to be a bit of Saint Michael. If they had a bit of of the archangel Michael, that would be alarming. That's not to say that that didn't exist. Um, I mean, I remember a story in which someone pulls out a feather, and claims that it's a feather that fell from the angel Gabriel's wings when he came and did the annunciation. Uh, But that guy was scamming uh, when he said that, but it's possible that there were actual relics like that. Um, But um, uh, yeah, exactly. uh, Mike, not all saints are human. Angels are are saints. Saint is a, is a, the sense in which he's using it here are fair is 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 in a sort of a generic uh sense a more generic sense um uh, yeah yeah um so uh okay <laughs> like any joke that needs this much explanation is just not good is not this not working um How many of you have seen a medieval reliquary? If you've seen a medieval reliquary, um, the reliquary means the, like, box that the relic itself is kept in. Um, So, medieval reliquaries are often, even usually, shaped like the thing that they have in them. For instance if you have a relic which is bones from the hand of a particular saint the reliquary that you build to store the holy bones in will be shaped like a human hand usually right um so and like if you've got a like a piece of the like the toe of somebody it'll be like shaped like a foot right He's joking. So Bedwyr is joking that the giant's body, right, the corpse of the giant is the reliquary so that they like joking that they on the 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 non-existent cloister on top of Mont Saint-Michel had a relic of St. Michael and made a reliquary shaped like St. Michael. And that's what Arthur stole. He didn't just steal the relic; he stole the whole reliquary. So he calls it the core saint because the core saint would be in the reliquary, right? So when Bedwyr says, "I have mickle wonder, and Michael be of such a mocking." Right. Is that what Michael looks like? Right. If that's what Michael looks like, why would God ever suffer him to abide in heaven? Right. I can't even believe that. Uh, If saint is be such that service Jesu, I will never seek for none by the faith of my body. Right. I didn't know the saints were this ugly. Right. Uh, Is the joke that he's making. Right. So it's like the giant's corpse is a reliquary. You had to be there. You had to be. You had to be in the 14th century for this joke to really be the knee slapper uh, that it would have been. The point is, he's making a joke, which is not totally expected, actually, uh, and it's more than a little bit unusual. And one of the ways, frankly, in which this is not really Mallory's idiom. This is a fairly minor way. Right. Arthur doesn't generally make jokes of this kind. Um, uh, but, you know, in this derived from this poem, in this section, he does. Um, anyway, OK, <laughs> sorry for the labored explanation of the joke, but uh, I wanted to make I, I, I was thinking that that passage might just be totally puzzling uh, uh, to many. All right, let's move on. To bigger issues with um, uh, with the idiom. So Sir Gawain and Sir Bors have been sent to the Emperor Lucius as messengers from Arthur, right? So they have been escorted into the presence of the Emperor um, under safe conduct as the heralds, you know, as the the, 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 the messengers, right, from Arthur. While there, than a knick that he Sir Gaius, that was cousin unto the emperor, he sighed these warders, Lo, ho, these English Bretons be braggers of kind, for ye may see how they boast and brag as they durst bait all the world. Than grieved Sir Gawain at his great warders, and with his bowerly brawn that breekt seemed, he stroke off the head of Sir Gaius the knicked. And so they torned their horses, and rode over waters and woodes, into they come nigh the bushment. There Sir Lionel and Sir Bedwyr were hoving still. Than the Romains followed fast on horseback and on foot, over a fire champagne, into a fire wood. Than turn is him Sir Bors, with a fresh wheeler, and so her guy kniekt, come fast on, all flourished in gold, that bare dune of Arthur's kniekt wonderful money. Then Sir Bors espied him. He cast in Fyrter a spear and girded him throughout the body, that his gut is fill out and the knicked fell doon to the ground that grisly groaned. All right. Um. See what happened here? Gawain and Bors are given safe conduct. They left Sir Lionel and Sir Bedwyr in a bushment, right, in ambush, in a wood nearby. While they're at the parley, Sir Gawain, without challenging or warning or anything, right, he's been insulted, it's true, right? Sir Gaius insults him, but Arthur just pulls out his sword and swaps off his head. And then they turn and ride back towards the Bushmen, knowing the Romans are going to chase them, right? Because they've just killed that other guy. And so then they lead them into the ambush, and then they ambush a bunch of them and slaughter a bunch of them, and that's really good. Okay. Is that really good? Now, Mike, I agree. At least it wasn't a lady he was decapitating this time. Um, as you know, between Sir Balin and Sir Gawain, we've had some bad luck with decapitating ladies, so I guess. It's better than that, right? Um, But, uh, yeah, Stephen says this seems less than thoroughly noble. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. This kind of murder of Sir Gaius seems like kind of the sort of thing that... It's not only that just, like... I'm gonna just pull out my sword and decapitate you without challenging you to combat or warning you or anything like that, which we've seen even King Uther when he was gonna attack the Duke of Cornwall told him to uh to 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 you know stuff him and garnish him right um so it, it's doesn't seem wholly in line with the knightly code uh that Maori has been building, and worse. This seems premeditated, this whole thing, right? Like he was looking, Gawain knew he was going to provoke, a, you know, a counterstrike by the Romans, and that's why he left the ambush, even the ambush itself, right? Now we've seen Arthur from the very first time we've ever seen him in battle against the 11 kings, um, leave a bunch of his men in the woods, but he leaves his men in the woods in those earlier passages, generally, to come out and reinforce him later on, right? He leaves them in the woods because he wants to fight the enemy with only a portion of his force, right? He's outnumbered to begin with, but I'm only going to take a quarter of my already outnumbered army into the field at first, because then, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, if I fight uh, with my right. I cannot be, it's over too quickly, right? I cannot be satisfied. Um, that's exactly the rationale that Arthur has. Like, so when he leaves Bors and Ban, uh, and the, King Bors and King Ban and their armies in the woods that first time when he's fighting with the 11 kings and then they come out later on, it's like, you know, I know something you do not know, right? Um, you know, I have two allies. Um, so uh, that's um, that's been the, Way this has gone. But just like we're I'm gonna do something outrageous, morally outrageous, and then lure you to chase me and then attack you from ambush that's different. That's different. Um and I'm not really a big fan. Um you notice the word I used in my subtitle here. This is riotous. Right. Um, this is very much in the spirit. Again, I'm, when I say these things, I'm not trying to criticize the alliterative Mord Arthur, which Mallory is following here. Um, it's a different ethos. Right. The, the alliterative Mord Ar- Arthur is following a different ethos entirely. And within the frame of that poem, these kinds of actions are OK. The problem that I have is that when Mallory is integrating it, he doesn't fully integrate it, right? He's incorporating this stuff. But this is riotous, Sir Gawain. This is this is what Arthur was promising when he says, I'm gonna bring my most riotous knights uh uh down with me to Rome. Um they they he does, right? And they they're riotous, right? Uh they're wild and crazy and they're they have honor. In one sense, in the sense of making big boasts and then backing them up, right? But they don't have the kind of values that Maori has been establishing. And of late, in the later sections of the first part of the book, um, rather carefully establishing uh, through the different adventures and the the censures of the misbehavior uh, of knights, especially Sir Gawain, in those early adventures and the vow, right, and all that stuff. He's been kind of laying out pretty clearly, what is a Knight of the Round Table supposed to be like? And it's not this. Again, this is fine in its own way, um, but it's different. And it kind of uh, bothers me a little bit. Um. Of course, another one of the ways in which Mowry is deviating from his source most forcefully is the character of Lancelot. Now, Sir Lancelot is actually mentioned in the alliterative Mort Arthur. I remember that very clearly, Um, but he is a very, very minor role. He does almost nothing. He's just kind of in a list uh, of knights at one point Um, because Lancelot was not the big deal. It is Sir Thomas Mowry who is going to make Lancelot. Who is Sir Lancelot is not Sir Lancelot until uh, until Sir Thomas Mallory. He did not invent him. He was there. Um, he is invented by Crétien de Troyes. And even when Chrétien invention invents him, um, he is invented to be like the greatest of the knights, sort of. Um, but he's very specialized. He's a kind of a... I don't know... Crétien's Lancelot is like a, is like a, 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 an artistic thought experiment, but that's a totally different story. Um, uh, maybe someday we should read Crétien's Lancelot, The Knight of the Cart. Uh, that is a really interesting, uh, poem. And I'll tell you in much more detail about Crétien's Lancelot, where you see the birth of, uh, Lancelot, the courtly lover. Um, but the Sir Lancelot that we all think of when we hear the name Sir Lancelot is Mallory's Sir Lancelot um and um he is he will not leave Lancelot to be just a, a, an idle mention he takes the fact that Lancelot is mentioned in the literature of Mord Arthur and seems to use that as his excuse to introduce Lancelot here, right? This is Lancelot's first adventure. He's just been made a knight and goes right off with uh, King Arthur on his Roman campaign, right? And this is where he distinguishes himself. Um, First, Juan the Romainas and the Saracens aspired how the gam yawed. They fled with all here meeked to hide their heads. Then Urkenechtes followed with a fresh fire, Fresh and slew down of the Saracens on every side. And Sir Launcelot did so great deed as of armies that day that Sir Cador and all the Romines had marvile of his meeked, for there was nother king, Kaiser, nother kniekt, that day might meeked stand him any buffet. Therefore was he honoured dies of his leaf, for never ere or that day was he proved so well for he and Sir Bors and Sir Lionel were but lot of four at an high fest, mad all three Knictis. Bors and Lionel are his cousins. Um, you remember King Ban and King Bors, right? Lancelot is the son of King Ban. Uh, Sir Bors and Sir Lionel are the sons of King Bors. Uh, so Bors is easy enough to remember. Um, uh, he, uh, Lancelot, has a brother as well, Sir Ector. No relation to the other Sir Ector. Uh, the stepfather of Arthur, um, different director entirely. Okay. Um, good. Now, um, so yeah, so this is Lancelot this is you know, emphasizing he was just made a knight, right? And nobody could stand him above it, right? That day. I mean, I was trying to decide, and I'm not sure. I was trying to decide if this is another joke at the top. That the Saracens espied how they yod and they fled with all hither meek to hide their head is. Is that a turban joke? I couldn't decide if that was a turban joke about hiding their heads. I mean, obviously, they're hiding their heads in fear, right? But I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't decide whether that was a turban joke or not. Anyway, um, Marilyn, great observation. Um, the hour is really interesting. That was one of the reasons that I wanted to... uh, Then, then, our knights. Um, The first person plural, the use of the first person plural. No, Maori hasn't talked like that before. But Maori, again, it's like, not Maori, right? He's this is part this is another example it's less of a big deal in that it's it's not like it's it's inconsistent with the world that he's been creating like the riotousness kind of is um but um uh but um he it's like using the name the conqueror to refer to arthur right I mean, yeah, the, Arthur in the poem is referred to as the Conqueror because it's a whole poem which is just focused on his conquering and then his death, right? Uh, you know, then his downfall. But, um, you know, so the the original alliterative mort is like a little, you know, it's a Wheel of Fortune story, right? Um, but, uh but again, that's not Arthur. Like he's not. Like all of a sudden, we're calling him the Conqueror. Just, it just the inconsistency bothers me a little bit, um, uh, and uh, even that point of view thing, Marilyn. The the use of our here, um, again, it just it doesn't sound like Maori. It doesn't sound like the entire rest of the book. Anyway, speaking of riotousness, though. Um, remember, Kay has been grievously injured and Bedwear has been grievously injured and Arthur is ticked off. You'll remember that a bunch of the battles prior to this point have been focused on captives. They're taking—remember Bors saw the gay knight, right, who is all covered in gold and everything? He's, he's, he's totally tricked out, right? Uh, this knight has, like, pimped his armor. Uh, that's what it means when they when they call it, when they, when they call him a gay knight, it means brightly colored with like gold and gems and stuff. Bors picks him out and he's like that guy, right? That's the guy, uh, that I want to, that I want to go after. Um, and it's for totally mercantile purposes. Um, they take a bunch of captives, which they're planning to ransom back for money. Um, and so if you can capture somebody very powerful and very rich, like, oh, I don't know, the King of France, um, Little piece of English history there. uh, Then you know you can get a very very big ransom. Um, This is in fact one of the reasons that the Hundred Years' War lasted as long as it did, uh, because it gave second sons in England something to do and a way to establish them. They didn't have any land, right? Didn't inherit any land, but they have a horse and a suit of armor. And if they can go and capture a French nobleman in battle, then they can ransom him back and set up their own place, right? So I mean, it's like a, it's like a. you know, it's a it's a, it's a job, right? It's a, it's an industry, and they're acting like that, right? They are taking captives, and they're going to ransom them. Lancelot's first battle, when you know he's sent off to go and uh, uh, escort the prisoners to Paris, um, but they get ambushed, as everybody kind of knew they would, which is why they sent Lancelot and other knights with them to protect them, and they have this huge, massive battle trying to defend the prisoners. Um, Anyway, so that's been a major feature of the battle so far. Let's take uh, all these captives so that we can ransom them. Anon as King Arthur had a seeked of the emperor Lucius, for king nother for captain he tarried no longer, and either with his sword is swapped it other. So Sir Lucius with his sword hit Arthur over overthwart the nose and gaff him a wound knock onto the tongue. "'Sir Arthur was wroth, and gaff him another, "'with all the meek that in his arm was laved, "'that from the crest of his helm unto the bare papas it went adoon, and so ended the emperor. "'Than the king met with Sir Cador, his keen cousin, "'and pried him, "'Kill doon clean for love of Sir Kai, my foster brother, "'and for the love of Sir Bedwyr, that long hath me served. "'Therefore salve none for gold, nother for silver.' For they that will accompany them with Saracens, the man that will save them, were little to prize. And therefore slay Dun and save nother heathen nother Christian. Whoa, whoa, that's intense, Arthur. Um, Take no prisoners. Slaughter everybody. Slay Dun and save nother heathen nother Christian. I don't care. Christian, pain him, kill him all says Arthur. Why? Because he is ticked off about the wounding of Kay and Bedwyr. Both of them are going to live, turns out, right? But Arthur doesn't know that yet. And he's really mad. Um, and uh, But anyway, he just killed Lucius, so that was easy. Um, though he did get a a, a a sword hit over Thwart the nose, which is awkward. Uh, almost pierced into his tongue, which is bad. And um, uh, did you follow the... So he gaff he him another. I really like that expression. Arthur, Sir Arthur was wroth and gaff him another. I'm going to give you another, right? So he gaff him another with all the meek that in his arm was laved, that from the crest of his helm unto the bare papas it went a dune. Your papas, uh, your breasts are your papas. Um, uh, both men and women are... D- d- well, they, they describe the papas of both men and women, the paps. Uh, so, from the crest of the head, he bisected him all the way down to the sternum. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Curry says that she feels like Arthur deserves the weird face injury. You know, tough but fair, Curita. tough but fair. Um, but yeah, then he's like, no, kill them all. And again, like, this is to me a way bigger deal than Sir Gawain, right? Like, even thinking back to the ethos that was so plainly established using Sir Gawain as a bad guy, right? Hey, when people ask for mercy, knights are supposed to give it to them, right? If you don't, you might end up decapitating a lady by mistake, right? Like Sir Gawain did. Um, I mean, you are absolutely, always, always give mercy when mercy is asked for, and then here's Arthur saying, nope. Forget about it. Um, kill them all whether they ask for mercy or not, whether they're pagans or Christians. Again, it like works better in the alliterative mort, um, which is a fiercer poem from the beginning and just in a different tradition. Um, uh, remember, a tradition that Tolkien quite liked. It's the alliterative mort that uh, Tolkien uses as his primary model when he does his Arthurian poem. Um, in the, in a similar um, alliterative mode as the alliterative mort. So both the form of the poem and the overall sort of plot shape of the poem is taken from the alliterative mort, though heavily influenced, Tolkien's Fall of Arthur, heavily influenced um, by the later French tradition and what we'll see in Mallory as well. But anyway, um, so again, me, I'm not a big fan. His message to the Pope, Arthur's remember he so he after the battle, he um, uses balmas and gummas and stuff and and preserves the bodies. Uh, he lays out the bodies of the Emperor and all of the other noble people that got killed, and he's sending the corpses back to Rome, right. Now say ye to the potestata, and all the lord is after, that I send him the tribut that I owe to Rome, for this is the true tribut, that I and mine elders have lost these ten score winters. And say him as Missimas, I have sent him the whole sum, and if they think it not enough, I shall amend it when he come. And furthermore, I charge you to sigh to them, never to demand tribute na' tax of me, nay of my landes, for such treasure must they tuck, as happens us here. Here's your tribute. I got your tribute right here, right? This is the tribute that I owe to Rome, and you're right. I've not paid tribute for ten score winters, right? We have, uh, we have overdue tribute that's done. Here's the tribute that we owe with interest, right? Uh, and that uh, fierce, though again comical, right? I mean he's he's uh this is dark humor, right? Um if it doesn't seem like this is enough tribute, right? If they if they think the sum is not quite high enough, I'll amend it when I come, right? I can add some more when I get there, right? If they don't think it's enough. Uh an enormously ferocious uh but kind of witty threat by Arthur, right? Um by this Arthur, it works for the iterative Mort King Arthur, in my opinion, much less so for Mallory's uh, King Arthur. Mm. I'll do it fast. Okay. Um, then they march down through Italy and they still take a bunch of cities and, and fight a whole bunch of people. And Arthur uh, gets like, really angry and uh, uh, attacks people very ferociously. Um, and then the army needs food, so he sends out Sir Gawain to steal some livestock, rustle him up some grub, as it were. And then Sir Gawain meets this knight, wandering by himself, minding his own business, and Sir so Gawain is like, shall we fight to the death? And the other guy's like, hey, let's do that. So they fight, and they, they both fight very fearsomely, and they both give each other very serious wounds. Um, uh, so the other knight right the stranger knight has a, wounds in his torso such that if i'm reading it correctly his liver and lungs are exposed to the air right and gawain has been pierced and apparently has an arterial bleed going on um so that's what happens right before this so uh, then they stop to talk after they get to that point of their of their uh, of their battle, found that canicht talked to Sir Gawain, and bade him bind up his wound, or thy blade Chanja, for thou all be bleedes this horse and thy breakt weedes. For all the barbers of Britain shall not thy blood staunch for all that is hurt with this blood bleed shall he ever. Oh, I have a magic sword which will make you to like uh, it will stop your blood from clotting in the wounds. That's handy. The sword of this guy is like the opposite of Excalibur's scabbard, right? The exact opposite. It's great. "'Big odd,' said Sir Gawain, "'it gravest me but little. "'Yet shalt thou not fear me, for all thee great warders. "'Thou truest with thy talking to tom my heart, "'but yet thou betide teen, or thou part hence, "'but thou tell me in hast, who may staunch my bleeding.' I love the, the the posturing that Gawain and the other knight do, right? The other knight is like, you better uh, get something for that wound, because all the barbers in Britain aren't going to be able to help you, right, pretty soon. They're not going to be able to staunch your blood, because uh, I have a magic sword, by the way. A magi- the, the magic uh, uh, sword of anticoagulation, coagulation um, and, uh, uh, and barbers, by the way, everybody knows uh, that barbers are... Um, um, that barbers are doctors, right? They're like the those the people who patch you up. Because they're used to, you know, sewing up wounds because you're a barber, right? It's what you do. Um uh so just roll with it. Uh one of my my wife's a doctor, and one of her favorite phrases is, Who's the barber here? Um, but anyway, uh okay, so so, yeah, so he's like, oh, yeah, so you better, you know, all the barbers in Britain aren't going to be able to help you. And he's like, and Gawain, this is so playground, right? He's like, I'm not worried about it. And you're trying to scare me, but it's totally not working. And uh, uh, you're going to be sorry uh, if you don't uh, tell me real quick how I can staunch this bleeding. right? There's going to be trouble in this valley, my friend. That may I do. And I will I could do that if I wanted to. So thou wilt succor me, that I might be fire christened, and become meek for my misdeeds. New mercy I, Jesu, beseech, and I shall become Christian and in God steadfastly believe. And thou mightst for thy manhood have meed to thy soul. This is a Saracen knight, right? This This guy is a Muslim that he's fighting with. And he's like, I could do that. I could tell you how to staunch your wounds, but only if you help me in what I want. And that is, help me become a Christian so I can repent of my sins. Um, and I want to become a Christian and believe steadfastly in God. Um, if you're thinking, but wait, as a Muslim, he already believed in God. Uh, no, 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 no. Muslims worship devils. Everybody knows that, right? Um Seriously, like that, that it's everybody knows that. So he would be learning about God for the first time if he became a Christian, just so that you know about these things um, from 15th century perspective. Okay, Um, I grout, said Sir Gawain. This conversation took an unexpected turn, right? They were they were they were still kind of posturing before. And now all of a sudden he's like, actually, I want to convert. So like now Sir Gawain is going to be like his godfather. Right, uh, he's gonna he's gonna like stand god'sib for him uh, as he's being christened. I grout," said Sir Gawain, "So God may help to fulfil all thy desire. Thou hast greatly hit deserve it. So thou say me the sooth. What thou saught here, thus singly thyself alone, and what lord or laygeant thou art under. It's so like, sure, I'll, I'll I'll help you. No problem. That sounds fine. You seem like a deserving chap. Um, but tell me the truth. Why Why were you here in the first place? Right. Maybe go in you should have led with that instead of leading with combat. But whatever. Um, seer he said, I, I hight primus, and a prince is my father. And he hath been rebel unto Rome and overridden much of his landes. Okay, so he's a Saracen. That's the downside. But the good news is he's a rebel to Rome. So he's a good Saracen, his father. Or at least a politically convenient one in any case. Um, oh, but there's more. <laughs> much, much more. And my father is come of Sounder's blood. That was over later of kings. <laughs> so he's descended from Alexander the Great, by the way, my dad. Yeah. And of Hector also. Was he combed by the right line? He's also the linear heir of Hector of Troy, by the way, right? As well as being of the line of Alexander the Great, right? It's just, that's just my family, you know? Uh, Oh, wait, and there's more. And many more were of my kindred, right? Both Judas Maccabeus and Duke Joshua. That's Joshua. Like Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Both Joshua uh, and Judas Maccabeus also in his family and i i am alder next of alisander and of alfric and of all the out isles i am the heir apparent of alexandria <laughs> all of africa which means north africa the southern shore of the mediterranean and of all the out isles yep that's me David says there's no kill like overkill. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, does anybody know the common thread? What connects all of the guys that he claims ancestry from? Anybody? Does anybody know? Alexander the Great, Judas Maccabeus, Hector of Rome, Joshua. Military leaders? Yes. Not only military leaders, these are four of the nine worthies, right? So there are nine worthies. Uh, The nine worthies are the great heroes, generally military heroes. Um, And they're divided into three sets of three. There's the three ancient uh, uh, worthies. Uh, There's the three biblical worthies. Uh, And there's the three Christian worthies, okay? The nine worthies are Alexander the Great, Hector of Troy, and Julius Caesar. He's the third one of the ancient worthies. He's the one that's not mentioned. But, of course, you wouldn't want to be kin to Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar was the one who was blamed for the tribute at the beginning. So we want to leave him right out of the genealogy, right? That would be awkward. And then the three biblical worthies are Joshua, Judas Maccabeus, and, and, good, you got it. Uh, uh, you got it, David or About King David. King David, of course, is the other of the three biblical worthies. I don't know why he didn't. It, David was just saying he was surprised he didn't claim to be of the line of David. Me too. I'm thinking maybe he doesn't claim to be of the line of David because it's a little too messianic, right? Um, you know he d- does, he doesn't act he he's not actually like "Oh yeah, and by the way, Jesus is like my third cousin uh like he doesn't he 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 doesn't go there um I suspect, David, that that because the line of David uh, has, be, you know, it is now like the messianic thing. It's why he doesn't claim descent. send. That's my guess of why those two, because they're the only two of the six ancient worthies that he doesn't claim uh, uh, kinship to. All the rest of the worthies are there. Judas Maccabeus cracks me up. right? I mean, that, like Joshua is 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 unlikely enough. But like Joshua and Judas Maccabeus, I mean, come on, that's that's really funny. Um uh, yeah. Now the three Christian worthies, by the way, are Charlemagne. Um, uh, uh, I always forget the other one. Of course, King Arthur is one of the three, but then there's the third one. Uh, oh darn it! I always forget the third Christian worthy. Um, I'm blanking on it. It's getting too late. I know it's it's just about time to stop anyway. Um, but um, Yes, Godfrey of Boulogne. Thank you, David. Phew. Ah, Godfrey of Boulogne. Yeah, or God. Sean got it there too. All right, Godfrey of Boulogne. Yeah, he, he's 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 the other one. Anyway, um, so when he starts trotting out Alexander, Hector, Judas Maccabeus, and Joshua, it's really clear, right? You know, he's like, I, you know, I'm descended to like most of the nine worthies, frankly, right? At least uh, most of the four out of the six of the ones who came before this time, right? Um, okay. So, all right. That's, that establishes him, right? and his lineage. So he is a Saracen. He's not Christian, but he wants to be a Christian, and he comes from this mighty tradition, right? This mighty tradition, which is both biblical and classical, uh, all of the great ones, all the way through. And he wants to be become a Christian, and he's going to become a knight of the Round Table. So you see, um, this guy, Sir Priamus becomes the like, it's not just that Arthur con- you know conquers all of these other realms. All of those realms that remember in the first slide were arrayed against him on the side of Rome. In the person of Sir Priamus, he's also sort of a co- they're also joining him, right? Um, those that are of good intention, right? Those that are uh, of uh, uh, of goodwill, um, will come to Arthur. Will repent right he wants to repent that's his goal he's like i need to repent man i need to become a christian and i need to repent uh and and then i can become a knight of the round table right um and that's that's the next step that's the next uh the next uh generation right um but there's meanwhile sir priamus and uh sir gawain are already mortally wounded, pretty much, right? Which kind of might put a damper on their relationship. "'Than Sir Priamus and Sir Gawain "'alicht both and let their horses bite in the fire meadow. Then they let bride off his bassinetes,' "'they take their helmets off, "'and here broad shieldes. "'Than either bled so much that every man had wonder "'that they meek sit in their saddles or stand upon earth. "'No fetch me,' said Sir Priamus.' "'My vial, that hangeth by the girdle of my hunks, my hanksman,' uh, henchman, that means, uh, "'for it is the flur of the four good waters "'that passes from paradise, "'that mickle fruit in falis, "'that at onday feed shall us all. "'Put that water in our flesh, "'where the side is tamid, "'and we shall be whole within four hours.' Okay. So, this is handy. Um so in this flask, this vial that he has uh uh hanging from the belt of his of his henchman over there. Uh it's the water of the f- uh, it's it's water from the four rivers that pass paradise. Um Genesis chapter 2. Remember Genesis chapter 2, it it talks about the four rivers at Eden. Right, um, so um, there are four rivers that pass near the garden. So we're talking. So paradise, by the way, is not heaven. Paradise is almost never heaven. Uh, paradise is Eden. Okay, the earthly paradise uh, that has been lost. Right, that's Paradise Lost. It's it's talking about Eden. Um, so there are four waters that pass by Eden, as you can read in Genesis chapter two, and mickle that mickle fruit, that great fruit falls in the water. What fruit? What fruit falls in the water? You got two guesses. Four fruit what, what 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 the two guesses. What fruit falls in, into the water? Yeah, exactly, Mike. The fruit of the tree of life. Not the other fruit. The fruit of the tree of life, not the fruit of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the fruit of the tree of life falls into the water. So this healing brew that he has is taken from the waters that have passed through paradise and have kind of soaked up some of the fruits from the tree of life that have fallen to the waters, right? One day that fruit shall feed us all because the fruit, the tree of life, will grow, of course, in the New Jerusalem, which you can read in Revelation, what is it, chapter 21. Um, So one day the fruit of the tree of life is going to feed us all. Uh, but right now we can't, we can't eat it, but it does fall into the water of the rivers that pass through Eden. We can't get there, but we can go downstream, you know, from Eden uh, if you're there. And then you can get some of this water, which will have some of the essence of fruit of tree of life. And it, um, it's a healing potion and it's pretty awesome. Um, You know who, uh, you know, who has read this passage really well? uh Don Quixote has read this passage uh, if you know Don Quixote, you remember Don Quixote talking about how he just needs to make that balm right he's totally thinking of this passage uh, when he is uh, when he's talking about his balm anyway last one then we're done they're leaving right all the. That- the uh, knights come to him, and they're like, we haven't seen our wives in a really long time, so can we go home, see our wives? Because we miss them. Um, and Arthur's like, okay, let's go home. Tham there was trussing of harness with carriage full noble. And the king took his leave of the Holy Father, the Pope, and patriarches, and cardinales, and senators, full rich, and left good governance in that noble city, and all the contrase of Rome, for to ward and to keep on pine of death, that in no wise his commandment be broken. Thus he passeth through the countries of all parties. And so King Arthur passeth over the sea unto Sandwich Haven, when Queen Guinevere heard of his coming, she met with him at London, and so did all the other queen as and Noble Laddies, for there was never a solemner mating me- meeting excuse me, sorry, we'll and slipped there in on city to getters, for all manner of riches they brought with him at the fall. Okay, there we go. Um I <laughs> the Stroke says, obey all my orders and also don't leave any hint to historians that I was ever here. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. Um, the thing that's really noteworthy about this passage, the thing that I wanted to emphasize here, is the... If you are a fan of the alliterative Mort Arthur and have been enjoying Mallory's adaptation into prose of the alliterative Mort Arthur, as well as slight updating with certain modern touches, like The Prowess of Sir Lancelot, um, uh, if you've been enjoying it, you'll be surprised at what happens next. Uh, that is to say, nothing right? Uh, when he gets there, and there's Queen Guinevere, waving on the key, right? Hi, honey! Welcome home! In the alliterative Mort Arthur, as in the fall of Arthur, he returns, Arthur returns from his Roman campaign because he hears that Mordred has taken over the country. Um, And, most interestingly, in the alliterative, the, the, the 14th century alliterative Mort Arthur that uh, Maori is using as his source. It is the only version of the story. Um, okay, but no, this is not quite true. We'll get to that in a second. It is one of the few versions of the story in which Guinevere consensually elopes with Mordred. She is unfaithful to Arthur uh, and cheats on him with Mordred and helps Mordred to usurp the kingdom. And this is the thing that is absolutely unique about the alliterative Mort Arthur. I don't know of any other instance in any other Arthurian story um, anywhere in the Middle Ages. Guinevere bears Mordred children and they run off. Guinevere takes the kids and flees from England when Arthur returns and has his big climactic battle uh, with Mordred, in which they're both killed. It is the only instance that I know of where Guinevere ever bears a child. Um, we don't get... Guinevere does not have babies. Anywhere, 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 except for the alliterative Mort Arthur. And it's to Mordred, not to Arthur, that she bears children. Which is just a, a fascinating moment in that poem. Um, so this is the kind of... It's a happy ending, but it's a wildly anticlimactic climactic ending. Um, and what's more it's an anticlimactic ending which also in a sense defeats the entire purpose of the story he's adapting um Again, the alliterative Mort Arthur is a Wheel of Fortune story. I'm doing this thing. Uh, you guys who have been who done the Boethius class will know. The Wheel of Fortune, Fortune's wheel is like a Ferris wheel. Uh, and you ride up the one side of the Wheel of Fortune, but there are no seatbelts, by the way, on the, seat, on the Wheel of Fortune, because when you rise to the top of Fortune's wheel, she's going to carry on turning her wheel, and you're going to come down the other side, and generally you fall off and are smashed to bits at the bottom. Um, so... That's, um, that's, that's the, I mean, this is a, it's a class. The iterative Mort Arthur is a classic wheel of fortune story, um, where it talks about Arthur who is, you know, he has achieved the greatest pinnacle of success. Uh, he is like, Arthur, you are the Roman emperor. Now, what are you going to do next? Answer is go home and crash and fall to your death. That's what you're going to do next because that's what happens, right? In the Middle Ages, you don't go to Disney World. You go to your horrible destruction and the loss of everything that you have gained. That's what you do when you achieve your great pinnacle of success. Um, So in the original poem, of course, the war with the Romans and the defeat of the Emperor Lucius is only the setting up of the mort of Arthur, right? Of the death of Arthur, which is the title of the poem. Um, And only it's there to kind of make it more fitting and to set it up. By doing what he's done, by taking this poem, by taking half of this poem, and adapting it and squeezing it into his larger story here, he's totally defeating the purpose of that. He's going to come back to the Wheel of Fortune. Arthur will eventually come down the other side. But uh, but again, it's just it's just awkward as anything, right? Because it's like, hey, you've reached the pinnacle of human success, and now just go home and kind of retire for a while. And it's extremely anticlimactic. Doris Stroke says it's more like the long ellipse of fortune. Yeah, kind of. Well, though, I mean, the point with Mallory, though, <clears throat> you might think that defeating the Roman emperor and becoming the ruler of Rome is the top of the heap, right? It certainly is. That's the case in the poem. Not in Mallory's world. Right? In Mallory's world, Arthur is not going to be at the top of the wheel of fortune until all 150 seats are filled in the round table. Right? The day that the last guy shows up and sits in the siege perilous and the entire table is complete for the first and only time, that's the day when Arthur is at the pinnacle of the wheel of fortune. And it's after that, that things are going to start to go downhill. Um, anyway. So uh, here we are at the happy, but quite disappointing petering out of this story again, especially if you're a fan of the original. Um, as I said, I I'm not a huge fan of Maori's adaptation here. Uh, I, I um, if done in a freestanding way, I, you know, I might like it, but as a piece of, the larger story that he's kind of putting together here, uh, it has some serious problems that kind of bother me every time. So um, join us next week when I will stop complaining about Maori's storytelling and we will look at the tale of Sir Lancelot, um, the, the real beginning of Lancelot's career, having established himself so that like, nobody could stand him above it uh, uh, in battle. He's now got a reputation for his strength and his prowess of arms. Now let's see what he's like. Let's get to know this character of Sir Lancelot. Um, I'm a big fan of the tale of Sir. Uh, although the the uh, the Emperor Lucius bit is my least favorite part of Mallory's book, uh, the tale of Sir Lancelot is one of my favorite parts. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm going to try to do it's relatively short. So I'm going to try to do it all next week, and we'll see how much we can get through. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Also, don't forget about the campaign stuff. Saturday, 3 p.m. is our campaign launching event, our our Hobbit Day reading event. And then uh, next week, I'll have some more information on our our fundraising campaign and special things we're going to be doing uh, here during our Mythgard Academy class. So thanks for joining us, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.